Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us for our new series, Big Faith Questions. During this series, we'll be looking at some of the big and tough questions that are posed to the church. Today, Lead Pastor David Fossilt addresses the question, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? We'll be challenged to look at the Bible from an evidentiary perspective as we look for facts. Listen as Pastor Dave helps us understand we don't have to check our brain at the door as we discuss these questions. As he says, the answer is, follow the evidence. Gospel of John, right toward the end of the, of the book, chapter 20, John says this, verse 1. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and he said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Notice right from the get-go, they're, they're not even sure or believe that he's risen from the dead. They just think someone took the body. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple started from the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but it, he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and he went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by, the, by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb, uh, to the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. Uh, there's a story about a, a man and his ever nagging wife that went on vacation to Israel. And when they were in Jerusalem, they got to Jerusalem there and uh, she passed away. And so he met with the undertaker and the undertaker says, um, well, we could send her back to, to the United States. It's going to cost you about $15,000 to do this, to send her back. Or we can bury her right here in Jerusalem for about, about 250 bucks. And right away, the, the guy said, oh, no, 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 let's, let's, let's ship her back to the United States. And the undertaker was, why would you do that? You know, why would you spend $15,000 to send her back to the United States when you could spend $250 and, and have her buried here in the holy city of Jerusalem? And, uh, and the guy answered, he says, well, you know, a long time ago, a man died here. And that man was buried here. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And I just can't take that chance with my wife. So let's just, <laughs> we, uh, we're starting a series this morning, uh, called big questions. And it's big faith questions, big faith questions that, that have to do with life. Like, for example, can you, can you really trust this book? I mean, can we really trust it or is it just full of stories and fables and, you know, a copy of copy, bunch of mistakes? Can you really trust this book? Uh, one of the weeks we're, we're going to talk about how is it that a good God allows bad things or horrible things to happen to us? I mean, how do we work that out? That doesn't make sense. How, what's going on there, right? Uh, we're going to spend some time, you know, uh, the Bible and these Christians, they talk about creation. But, you know, when I went to biology class in high school and then university, they're talking about evolution. So how do I fit these two together and what's going on here? Can we, can, is there an overlap or not overlap? What, what's happening there? Uh, another question we're going to talk about is there's all these major religions and faiths in the world. You got Hinduism and you got Buddhism and you got Islam and you got Christianity. Those are the big top four, you know, and, and, and they all seem very sincere. All these folks seem sincere and, and certainly they all are taking different paths, but it, 
they all end up at the same place, don't they? I mean, it, it all ends up at the same place or or is it? Possible that only one of them are true. What's going on here? We're going to talk about about that issue. We've got a lot of big questions that we're going to talk about. The kind of obvious uh, duh question we're going to talk about this morning is this one right here. Let's put it on the screen. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I mean, is that something that's kind of smoke and mirrors and, you know, wink, wink, we're supposed to believe it? Or did he really historically actually rise from the dead? Or is it just one of those made up stories so that, you know, weak religious people can feel good? There's a few of us out there, you know, which one is it? Right now, this is a big deal. This is such a huge deal that the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth says this in first Corinthians chapter 15. Let's put it up on the screen. He says, if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless. What I'm doing up to here this morning is absolutely worthless. It's a waste of time. But you're included. Check this out. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So if this resurrection thing didn't actually happen in history, you might as well stay home. You might as well check out and next Easter, just go have brunch. Don't come to church. It's that big of a deal. The foundational issue of everything related to Christianity, the cornerstone issue is this issue alone. Did he actually rise from the dead? Right. Uh, there's an author that I like to, le- to read. His name is Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell says this. He says the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon people or it's the most important fact in history. It's either a huge lie and we, we've all been duped or it's the most central important issue in history. Now, I, I'm going to give you kind of an advance notice that our, my teaching style over the next five, six weeks and during this series is going to change. Uh, if you've been part of Bay Hills for a while, you know that uh, we have kind of different teaching styles. So last last week, the teaching style was, you know, you guys, many of you saw the Judas thing, right? And I dressed up as Judas and it told the story from Judas's perspective. It was kind of a dramatic teaching style. By the way, just to get my money's worth and the costuming and everything, I wore that costume all week long. Staff meetings and Walmart and it was awesome, right? And it was cool. If people were like, who are you? What's going on? Oh, it's Bay Hills. You should come. They thought it was cool. I said that. If they thought I was crazy, I introduced myself as Phil Howard from Valley Bible. And so, but just, no, it's, no, I, I like Phil. I'm just teasing. So we got the dramatic style of teaching, right? The preferred style, most of the times what we'll do is we'll cover 10 verses in the Bible. What does it say and how should it, how does it help us? That's, the, I think, the best way to, 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 to teach on Sunday morning. But this next series, I, I almost, you don't want to think about it as a sermon. You almost need to think about it like a seminar. You want to pretend and think, I'm not in church, but I'm, I'm sitting in a university lecture class doing a comparative study on religious uh, religious systems and, and, and we're going over Christianity. The reason I'm saying that is because today uh, I'm really uh, I'm going to be speaking 90 percent to your brain, to your mind. I'm going to help reason with you from an intellectual evidence, evidentiary perspective. What is this resurrection and is there actually facts and evidence we can determine what happened or did not happen? Uh, I, I'm not really going to speak to your soul at this morning. You, and you know how I, I can motivate you and, and inspire you and everything. I'm going right to your brain, right? And there's a lot of facts we're going to go over this morning. I don't have a lot of jokes, don't have a lot of stories. It's just facts. It's like you're taking notes. 
believing that if I can help you understand intellectually that you do not have to check your brain at the door if you believe in Christianity. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's actual fact. It'll actually eventually filter down into your soul and it'll bless you. Do you see where I'm going with this? So if you take your study guide, it's just it's basically notes this morning. OK, now I also want to acknowledge that there are two different groups of people here this morning. There's there's those of you and, and most of you fall into this category. You already believe in this Jesus thing. You already believe in this Bible thing. You already believe in this resurrection thing. You already believe it. But as your pastor and someone who cares for you, here's my issue. You may believe it, but many of you don't know how to explain it. You don't. And, and if you have a coworker or a classmate or a family member that asks you what, so what is it with you in this church deal? You, you do know they don't want you to pull out your Bible. That's the last thing they want from you. They just want to chit chat. That's all they want to do. And I'm telling you that the, the key perspective that you should take is what, what we're talking about this morning, the resurrection, right? You know, every once in a while, someone will ask, well, what about the guy in the middle of the jungle who's never heard about Jesus? What about him? I don't know about him, but I know about you and what's going to happen to you, right? We're talking about you this morning, not the guy in the middle of the jungle. Uh, for those of you who are already believers, I need you to listen, think, and jot down notes so that you can talk about this to your friends because it matters and it'll make a difference for them. Now, for those of you who fall into the category that, you know, I just pretty much only show up at Easter to church. I just want to say, I'm glad you're here. I'd prefer you to be here than not be here. Right. I'm not upset that you don't come over other weeks, but I, I want to, to encourage you to have an open mind. I want you to have an open mind, follow the evidence and then wherever the evidence acknowledge the obvious, the answer to this question, what happened to Jesus? The answer to that question has huge implications. Do you agree? See, here's the deal. Ninety nine percent of the world's population, university professors, whether you're a Christian or not, they already believe that there was a guy that was a very talented teacher. His name was Jesus. Everyone agrees with that. You would be in less than 1% minority to go, well, I don't even know if he walked the face of the earth. No, 99% of the world believes there was an actual guy called Jesus from the region of Nazareth. He was a rabbi and he was a really good teacher. Everyone already agrees with that. 99% of the world agrees that same guy was killed by the Romans. Everybody agrees on that. The issue is what happened after he died? That's the only question. And if you can answer that question, it'll take you to a natural conclusion. However, you answer that. Does that make sense? Now, there are only four possible answers. Now, I'm going to break this down for you and, and, and encourage you to do some follow up on your own. Uh, the, the, some of the stuff that that I'm going to go over this morning, it, you can also find in these two books here. Uh, Josh McDowell, more than a carpenter. Let's get that next slide up there. Uh, we already read a quote by him. You, you pick that book up. That's a real thin book. I remember having a conversation with a submarine captain on a plane, four hour flight. We talked the whole way, gave him this book at the end. And I don't know what happened to him, but it, it's going covering the same thing. The next book, very famous book, The Case for Christ by a guy called Lee Strobel. He was an atheist investigative journal for the Chicago Tribune. And he decided to do a piece on disproving Christianity, disproving the resurrection. And the reason he did it is because his wife started going to church and he was like, oh, I don't want none of that. I'm going to show her. Right. And that book is the result of his research. 
Okay, so take it for what it is. But it's very by the I was looking for that book this week. I couldn't find it in my bookshelf. And I thought I heard we had one back here and I couldn't find it. And so I texted our church administrator. I was here on a Tuesday church, uh, texted my church administrator, Brigitte, and said, I can't find the case for Christ. I can't find a case for Christ. And and my problem was, though, I didn't send it to the church administrator. I sent it to my lunch appointment and they were like, what is going on here? <laughs> Pastor doesn't have a case for Christ, but uh, I think I do. But um Go to your study guide. There's four things I want to talk to you about. Four potential theories. Theory number one, the body of Jesus was stolen. He died and his body was stolen. This theory appears immediately within the first week of his death. It is presented by the Jewish authorities because they and the Roman authorities want nothing to do with the story of a risen God, a risen Messiah that's going to revolutionize the world and turn it on its head. Nothing to do with it. So here's how that theory goes. In order to remain popular with the crowds, the disciples stole the body of Jesus, you know, and then they made up a story of the resurrection. At face value, you're thinking, that's that actually makes sense. It's fairly reasonable. Except when you start to follow the rules of evidence as you would follow in a courtroom, you begin to see that there are some potential issues with this theory. Next slide, five points that you have to determine. Number one is that if the disciples stole the body, you have to admit that it was certainly out of character for them. Their whole life, these are individuals who have a high moral standard, but you now have to conclude that they decide to throw their morals out the door and they decide to steal a body and live and teach a lie for the rest of their life. That on its own seems difficult to conclude. Uh, uh, And then when you look at the sliver of what was going on in their life at the very moment, their leader and rabbi is arrested and killed. They're hiding in a small upper room in Jerusalem. Somehow or another, you have to conclude they got a shot of adrenaline and became the most courageous revolutionaries that the world has seen. If you can somehow get by that, now you have to go to point number two. They were able to pull off the robbery of the century. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because this is a key point. We are told by historical and biblical accounts that the Romans put a unit of soldiers at the tomb, 12 to 16 soldiers. For this to happen, you have to assume that the disciples tiptoe around the sleeping guards or that the guards just decided he's a dead body. We don't have to guard it. We're going to go into the city and party. Now, for those of you who have been in the military... How does the military, uh, how do they respond to a soldier that sleeps on the on their post or goes AWOL? Not too good. Would you agree? You want to know what happened to Roman soldiers that slept on their post or went AWOL? You want to know what their sentence was? They were killed. So I'm just asking you, do you think it's reasonable to assume that those 12 soldiers all fell asleep or went partying? You have to conclude that. At some point in time, okay, let's get past that. So now they tiptoe past the guards and they get to the tomb. One of the things that uh, that I think is interesting, we don't talk about this hardly at all, is the seal on the tomb. Um, it's hardly ever addressed in, in, in Jesus' movies. There was just a movie out about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It didn't get high reviews. It's not in the theaters now anymore. It's called Risen. It's the you know, imaginary story of a soldier who's looking for the risen Jesus and all that. Uh, and, but I have an image. It's not very good because they haven't released a lot of pictures. But let me show you why I think this is interesting. It's one of the few movies that actually shows what a seal on a Roman tomb looked like. Pilate doesn't want any shenanigans. So we're going to seal the tomb. What 
the sealed tomb looks like is they put a two ton rock in front of the opening of the tomb. Then they wrap ropes around it and tie it to the wall. And then you can see on the top of the image and then on the bottom of the image, the two Roman seals. For you to get the seal and the ropes off of the tombstone, it would take an average of 30 to 45 minutes. So you have to, again, assume that the disciples courageously tiptoe around the guards that are all sleeping, and then they spend 30 to 40 minutes cutting the ropes and breaking the seal. Next scene in the same movie, put it up there, you've got that Roman soldier and eight of his guys moving the stone. Now, it's possible to move a stone. The issue isn't that you can't move a stone. It's a two-ton stone. The issue is that, and what I liked about this movie, is that it sounds like a freight train. Again, do you think it's reasonable the guards fell asleep or, or were drunk and went partying? Uh, the, the, the disciples took 30 minutes to unseal and break the tomb. Then they rolled the rock away. All this time, they don't wake up the guards. Then they go into the tomb and they unwrap the body of Jesus. Why? Just take the body and run. But no, they unwrap the body and leave the cloths and the linens there. Question. Does that seem reasonable to you? You figure it out. Now you have to go down to points three and four. Let's put the next slide up there. The benefits, uh, the disciples didn't benefit and the disciples didn't recant their story. Here's what, what of this theory, this is the one I can't figure out the, the most, how people would, would come to this conclusion. They didn't get rich because of this story. They didn't go on a speaking tour. The, the books that they wrote about Jesus called the Gospels, they weren't bestsellers. They didn't get a real big house and a big chariot to live in because they became so popular. They were chased around the Roman kingdom. They, they, they got absolutely no benefit from speaking this story. The second one that to me personally, to me, is the one that convinces me the most is this idea that they didn't recant. They didn't recant their story. So so let, let's just imagine we got we got the 12 disciples right here in the first first row. OK, the 12 disciples, we all decide to steal the body and we all decide to come up with the story that Jesus is risen from the dead. Here's the problem. As the years go by, the 12 disciples, because after Judas, they added another one. The 12 disciples is arrested one after the other after the other. And here's what the Roman soldiers say to them. OK, we know you guys took the body. You have two options. You can either uh, recant your story and then we'll tell everybody and publicize that you've changed your story or we're going to kill you. I'm just curious. Do, do you think at this point in time, if we have nothing to benefit, what is there a reason for us not to tell the truth? You, you see what I'm saying here? By the way, just by comparison, just by comparison, I have right here the Book of Mormon. This is the number one text for the Church of the Latter-day Saints. I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but if you go to page four, it has uh, it's called the testimony of the three witnesses. Then you have the testimony of the eight witnesses. And then you have the testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith. So you got uh, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 witnesses. These witnesses testify that an angel brought golden tablets to Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church. He translated those golden tablets, and that's the Book of Mormon. Do you know that nine out of the 11 witnesses, nine out of the 11 recanted their story before they died? Nine out of 11 said, we made it up. 
The only ones that didn't was Joseph Smith, the founder, and his brother. Now, all I'm saying is this. Would that cause you to pause about what's going on here? Would that cause some concern? And then halfway through the life, some of the ones that recanted, recanted their recantation. I mean, it just gets all messy. Half, over half of them changed their story. Now, let me ask you about this. This book and the disciples. No one changed their story. No one changed their story. They all died other than John a violent death. You want to know how Peter died? Let me show you a painting of how Peter died. Did you know that this is in history books? Peter is crucified upside down. They say, you want to keep this story about a risen Jesus? Okay, we'll do to you what we did to Jesus, except we'll make it worse. So you have to you have to figure out if they did steal the body. It was out of character. It was the robbery of the century. They didn't benefit. They didn't recant. Then what do you do with the appearances of Christ? How do you how do you justify that? Because he showed up 12 different times over 40 days to 515 people. So now what are you going to do with that? So all I'm saying is if you're going to go with this theory, you have to work through these issues. Does that make sense? Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next one. The next one is that he never died. This was a theory proposed in 1780 by a German called Barnt and an Italian called Venturini. And here, and this one actually kind of makes sense. If he didn't die, then he didn't raise from the dead. And if he didn't raise from the dead, then he isn't who he said he was kind of makes sense watch this one jesus merely fainted on the cross from exhaustion and the loss of blood when he woke up in the tomb he unwrapped himself he rolled the stone away and appeared to his disciples saying he'd risen from the dead right he didn't die on the cross if he didn't die on the cross he just woke up in the tomb showed up convinced everybody he defeated death and sin and now we start our little thing called christianity but now what you have to do is you have to walk through five or different things let me show you let's put them off the screen the beating, the crucifixion, the executioners, the burial custom, and the guards at the tomb. Let me take one at a time. This next picture I'm going to show you is of a Roman whip. It's called a flagrum. A flagrum. What they would do is they would take a whip and they would tie pieces of iron and pieces of bone to it. The goal was when you would beat the prisoner, it would literally, like Velcro, stick to their back or to the side. And then as the, as the, as a soldier, you could rip their skin off. That was the goal, the intended goal. No one who received this beating or most of the people who received this beating all had received a, 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 a death certificate. In other words, they were all going to be, uh, go to capital punishment. So there was no motive to try and keep them healthy. I was going to show you a scene from the Passion of the Christ, decided not to because it's so violent. But one of the things that um, I appreciate about the movie is that it's accurate in terms of this beating. So I am going to show you two images. The image on the right is the as it's pictured in the movie. That's what ended up happening to the victims. Hist historians tell us that a, a lot of the people that were that received this beating would die right here. So if you're going to accept this theory, one, you have to assume he made it past that. Two, you have to assume he made it past the crucifixion. Let me show you the next picture. What I want to point out to you about this is that this is a drawing, rendering drawing on the right hand, a left hand side. And what I want to point out to you is we think about, well, they nailed him to a cross. And we picture the kind of nails that, you know, we, we use in our garage when we're putting up drywall. What I want to show you is that the, the nails they use were more like spikes that are used 
to put tracks down when you're building a railroad. They were huge. If you look at the next picture, the next picture also shows the size of the spike that would go through the feet of the prisoner. Okay, it would end up looking like this. Let's put the next slide up there. What you see on the right hand side, that is technically how the prisoners were nailed to those crosses with their knees bent like that. Okay. by the way, the rendering by the artist is accurate. They would put them on the cross naked because the goal was not just to kill them. It was to humiliate them. Uh, Doctors tell us today that 90 percent of the men and prisoners that were put on a Roman cross would die from asphyxiation. Their body would sag over time. And as their bodies sagged more and more, they could not get uh, uh, oxygen into their lungs. The only way they could get oxygen into their lungs is by pushing themselves up by their feet, which, of course, was nailed to the cross. So, again, why am I going here? Because this theory says he never died. So you have to assume, A, he made it past the beating. B, he made it past the crucifixion. C, let's put the next slide up there. He made it past the professional executioners. Their only job is to make sure that the people, the prisoners that come off that cross are dead. I'm not releasing the body to the family for burial until I know he's dead. So what the executioners would typically do is if they weren't sure, they would break the shins of the prisoner. They would do that because now within 30 seconds to a minute and a half, the person would not be able to breathe anymore. In Jesus' case, we are told that they put a spear through his side. By the way, what came out when, when, when they speared him? It was a, a fluid, a, a clear substance or water. Blood didn't come out. Doctors now tell us that that is an indication the heart had already stopped working. It had stopped working. But you again, you have to assume... He made it past the beating. He made it past the crucifixion. And all of the guards and executioners allowed a live man to get down off that cross. If you get past all of that, some people would say only point four is an issue. The burial custom. Let me show you this next image. This is a picture of a different movie um, that's talking about the, the, the death of Lazarus. Now, one of the things you have to understand about Jewish burial custom compared to Egyptian burial custom, the Egyptians would embalm and kind of mummify. The Jews didn't go to that extent. But here's what they did do. They would put over 100 to 150 pounds of cloth around the body. They have done this with healthy individuals today. Do you know that if you do that to a healthy individual, they can't breathe and they die just because of that? So now you've got the beating, the crucifixion, the executioners, the burial custom. He made it through all of that and then somehow on his own wakes up on the inside, takes the wrapping off, rolls the tomb, uh, the, the stone away on his own, doesn't wake any of the guards at the tomb and then desperately needing medical attention, shows up to the disciples and proclaims that he has conquered death. Do you think that's reasonable? That's what. You got to figure out, by the way, not pastors, not seminary professors, but the American Journal of Medicine has said this. Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side. Interpretations based upon on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appeared to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Do you think so? If his body wasn't stolen, okay. And he did die. 
There's a third option. Now, this third option, it's hard to, to gain traction on it, but let me show you what it is. They put Jesus in the wrong tomb. This is a theory that is, it was proposed in 1935 by a guy called Kirsop Lake, and many people believe that. Okay? There is one major religion in the world that believes this right here. And I'm not going to tell you which one it is. I'm just going to tell you a lot of people believe this. Here's this theory. The women who first reported the body missing mistakenly went to the wrong tomb. They just made an honest mistake. They went here and oh, no, no, no. He's buried over there. Since the tomb they went to was empty, they assumed Jesus had risen from the from the dead and the story just snowballed from there. That's how this that's how this theory goes about now. I'm going to spend very little time on this one because you can poke holes on it on your own very, very quickly. Let me show you the next slide. Um, it's contrary to historical and biblical details that tell us that Jesus was born in an actual tomb of an aristocrat in Jerusalem called Joseph of Arimathea. We know that and we also know by by records from the Romans themselves that they put the guard there, they sealed it. And they and they they secured that tomb. So right away, you have issues with number one to me. Number two and number three speak volumes. Pilate does nothing and the Jewish authorities do nothing. You see, the Jews and the Romans did not want this story of a risen Jesus. That's the last thing we want. So I'm going to ask you if your Pilate and all these crazy Christians start saying that Jesus rose from the dead. What is what should Pilate do? Uh, time out. Yeah, no, you guys are going to the wrong tomb. No, let me bring you over here. No, check this out. You got, you see, they're my guards right there. They're still there and the seal's still on it. Oh, you don't believe me? Okay, let's roll the stone back. Let's take the body out. Let's unwrap it. You see, it's Jesus. The fact that the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities say nothing speaks volumes. Does that make sense? They do nothing. They could have stopped this story immediately. They say nothing. Absolutely nothing. Again, we've already talked about this. What do we do with the appearances of Jesus Christ? If they went to the wrong tomb, what are you doing with all these appearances? You can't explain them. And then we've already gone over. What do you do with the life of the disciples? How do you justify that their life gets turned upside down? So they either stole the body or I never died. Or they put him in the wrong tomb. I hate to tell you, there's only one more option. There's only one more option. It's the resurrection theory. That's it. Let me show you what the resurrection theory says. And you got to figure it out on your own. Jesus was crucified. He died, was buried in a sealed tomb. After three days, he rose from the dead. And here comes the kicker, forcing us to conclude, forcing us to conclude that he was who he said he was. You see, you don't have normal people come back from the dead. If he comes back from the dead, it forces you to a conclusion. It forces you to a conclusion that he was who he said he was. He was actually God. Now, same thing. Go through the same steps of evidentiary process. Is there evidence for this? Let's go through it. First one is this. Jesus predicted it. Let me read to you what Matthew says or Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. It says this. Um, Verse 22, when they came together in Galilee, when the disciples came together, Jesus said to them, uh, the son of man, that was a title given to Jesus. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, I will be raised to life. So this is before he's arrested, before he's on a cross. 
He predicts, I'm going to come back from the dead. Now, when he did this, and he did this four or five times, you know, I don't know what the reaction of the disciples were. One, they were confused. Two, they were embarrassed. Oh, oh my goodness, here comes Jesus saying these crazy things again. Or three, they thought he was being symbolical. It can't, he must not be saying what we think he's saying. But now that we know that after his death, something happened, put yourself in the shoes of listening to this. Um, if you're a philosophical thinker, if you like deep thinking, you might want to read a guy called C.S. Lewis. He was a, a British university professor, and, and he explained it this way. Let me show you. He says, Jesus was either a lunatic, or he was a liar, or he was Lord. He was either mad, bad, or he was God. You see, here's the thing. You, he doesn't allow you to say he was a good teacher. You can't say that. He was a good moral teacher because the main thrust of his teaching was, I'm God. So he's either crazy off his rocker, right? Or he's a liar and a con man. Or he is who he said he was. Those, those are your only three options. He's crazy. He's a liar and a hoax. Or he was who he said he was. That's the only options we have. So you start now going down the rest of the list. Let's put the next next thing up there. After the 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 the, the fact that Jesus predicted it, I went to Israel for a month, went on a study trip, and you can go to the empty tomb of Jesus. By the way, does anyone recognize the the couple on the right? You guys recognize them? Does anyone recognize them? No, I don't either. I just pulled them off the internet. I just want <laughs> I just wanted to see if anyone saw them. I pick two, I pick, people go there all the time. By the way, you can go to the, to the tombs of all the major religions in the world except for one, Jesus. All the other ones have corpses in it. And they all are shrines where people go to pray. There's nothing there. I'm just saying, what do you do with that? You have to answer this question some way, somehow. No one went there. No one would go there for years and years and years. There's nothing to see. It's empty. There's nothing in it. How do you justify the empty tomb other than concluding that he rose? If Or you have to go with he got stolen or he never died and he got out on his own. Uh, this next one, I'm going to read one more verse for you. Is the, the, this idea that over 500 people saw him. I think this is interesting. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking and here's what he says. Jesus was seen by more than 500 followers at one time. There are about, I've been told there's 630 some seats in this, in this room right here. So not all the seats are filled. Let's just assume this is just around 500. Uh, you do, you do know that hallucinations are, are individual events. They don't happen as a group activity, right? All right. And so 500 people, 500 people at once see him. I'm caught by the last phrase. James saw him, later the apostles saw him, and lost of all, Paul says, I saw him. Now, what really catches my attention is what I've highlighted in red for you. Do you see what I've highlighted in red? Uh, Paul says, by the way, of the 500 people that saw him at one time, most of them are still alive. This is written 30 years after the death of Jesus. 
why the, 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 the church gained so much traction is because when Paul says most of them are still alive, what he's basically saying is, you know, about a hundred of the 500 people died. They, they, these people, but there's still 400 that's still alive. And there's 400 people in Jerusalem going, I don't know what you're talking about. I saw him. I talked to him. That's why the world was turned on its head because all these people were saying, no, no, I, I saw him. I will stake my life on it. I'm going to keep it right here. The last two to me are amazing. Um, number four, the radical transformation of people. Acts chapter nine is the story of a guy, a guy called Saul that eventually his name is changed to Paul. What I'm captivated about is not only the story of Saul, but the guy James at the bottom line. You know why James and the story of Paul interest me? They interest me because neither of those two guys believed in Jesus when he was alive and taught. Neither of them. In fact, James was his brother. He was the brother of Jesus. And you know what James tried to do when Jesus was alive? He tried to have him committed to an insane asylum. Your God you got to be kidding me. We bunked together for the first 10 years of our life. Now you're saying you're God? I don't think so. He tried to have him committed. It wasn't until the death of Jesus and his when he saw his risen body, then and only then did he believe. Paul, he was actually contracted by the religious authorities, the Jews, to track down and kill Christians. How do you explain his life transformation? How do you explain that he went from killing Christians to probably one of the most influential Christians that the world has ever known? You got to figure that out. You got to try and answer that question because it's a real issue. Then the last one is just history supports it. Bay Hills is here today. The church exists around the world. And when I say church, I mean big C because of one and only one issue. When the church gets started in the book of Acts, You want to know what their message was? was? It wasn't love your neighbor. It wasn't take care of the poor. It wasn't turn the other cheek. You want to know what their message was? He's alive. He's alive. That was their message. And like a domino effect, it took off everywhere. He's alive. If you go to the Guinness Book of World Records, you're going to see a picture of this guy right here. I don't really know how to pronounce his last name, Lionel Lucku, or however you pronounce that. Uh, he is a t- an attorney in Great Britain, and he is dubbed uh, the world's most successful attorney by the Guinness Book of World Records. And I wrote this down. The reason they gave him that that accolade, check this out. He has won 245 murder trials in a row. 245 guys that were brought to trial by the government in England. This guy, 245 times in a row, has got them acquitted. Now, I'm not giving value to what he does. I'm assuming out of the 245, there was at least a few of them that did it, right? (laughs) I'm saying if something happens to me, that's the guy I want, right? All I want to point out is that he obviously has a skill, He has the ability to look at evidence and poke holes in it in order to get his guy acquitted. That's all I'm saying for the moment. He has that skill to look at evidence and poke holes in it. This is what Lionel Luck, who has said, let's put the, the quote up there. 
The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. So here's all I want to say. What do you think happened? What do you you think happened? There's only a couple options. Let's put the next slide up. This is kind of our summary slide. Do you think the disciples stole the body? If so, this is just all a big lie. It's just a big lie. It could be that, right? Anything's possible, I guess. Or do you think Jesus never died? If that's the case, he made it up. It's just a big hoax. Or they put the corpse in the wrong tomb. It's just a big mistake. No one did it on purpose. It's just a big mistake. Or he actually rose from the dead. And this is a really big deal. It's a big deal. I told you 90% of what I was going to do is I would talk to your brain. And you could tell this morning is different, right? I'm just going point by point by point. No, no stories. But this last couple of minutes, I want to talk to your heart. Because I'm hoping and I'm assuming that if you think a certain way about these facts, it'll impact your soul. I talked to you about there's a couple different types of people in, in church this morning. The believer, the seeker, and the person who's ready. Uh, and for each one of you, I want to challenge you just a little bit differently. Uh, it's important that we've processed, uh, processed intellectually what, what may or may not have happened. But ultimately, is it going to impact your life? Here's what I want to challenge you with. Let's put this as our last slide. If you are here, and I know 80% of you are here today, and you showed up and you already believed in Jesus. You already believed in the resurrection. You already believe in this church thing. Could I encourage you to have a thank you God attitude? Thank you God that my faith is based on truth. Thank you God that I don't have to check my brain at the door. Thank you God that my faith is based upon a supernatural actual event that I can put teeth behind. Thank you, God, that you came up with this plan to restore my soul in my relationship with you. You know, one of the interesting verses that I find in the New Testament is one that says that the angels look at this plan of God. And you know what the angels think about God's plan, about sending Jesus to die for us? You know what they think about this plan? They don't understand it. You know why they don't understand? Here's what they don't understand. Why does God give mankind a second chance, but he didn't give angels a second chance? Lucifer didn't have a a chance to repent. Lucifer didn't have a chance to get saved. No, he he sinned and he's out. And the angels are wondering, why, why, why do they, why do they get a second chance? You know what? It's high time you start realizing you don't deserve a second chance. Who do you think you are that God owes you something? which should drive you to your knees and have a thank you God attitude. Because I realize I don't deserve what you've given me. I also want to encourage you, and I told you at the beginning, it's one thing to believe it, but do you know how to talk about it? Do you know how to dialogue about it with people that you and I care about? Don't argue with them. Chit-chat with them. This is a big deal. And it's You don't have to have some high IQ or a PhD to start going through the options. If you're an already believer, I want to encourage you to have a thank you attitude. Have confidence in your faith. 
and learn how to talk about this. If you're a seeker, if you're here today and you came because someone invited you again, I, I really am. I'm, I'm sincerely glad you came. I hope you'll come back for some of the other big questions because I'm sure you have them. And I would just challenge you, keep seeking. Keep seeking, keep asking hard questions. But could I, could I just challenge you just a little bit further? Make it a front burner issue. Could I just respectfully say some of you are playing games with God? Follow the evidence. Make a decision. Follow the evidence. Make a decision. Put it on the, uh, uh, make it a priority in your life. Pick up those books. All you got to do is just go to Amazon and Google and you'll, you'll come up with a dozen books. You read them. You decide. You don't have to trust me. You figure it out. Why? Because the answer to this question has huge implications for you. You. Some of you, maybe over the last half an hour, maybe you put yourself in the last category. I'm ready. I'm ready to make a decision. I sure hope, you know, there are some of us Christians here today and we believe in Jesus and we do the Bible thing, but we have not committed our lives to Jesus Christ. We are not giving God what he deserves. And it's time for you to make a decision to start living for Jesus Christ. It's not just about getting fire insurance so you're going to be okay when you die. It's about living for him. And it's high time you make a decision to live for him. He deserves that. But some of you may be here this morning and saying, you know what? There's something in my mind and there's something in my soul that is confirming that he really did rise from the dead. And if you are there right now and you sense the Holy Spirit knocking on your door, I want to encourage you, why not make a decision to follow him today? Why not? By the way, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. You know that the Bible says it's not enough just to believe in the resurrection. That doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, I'm glad that you believe in it. It doesn't make you a Christian. You know what makes you a Christian? Three things. Number one, you repent of your sins. And I sure hope nobody has trouble doing that here because we all got garbage in our life. You repent from your sins. Number two, you accept the gift of salvation. I hear people talk about, well, I'm going to invite Jesus into my life like he's a guest, a dinner guest. No, it's you accepting the gift. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I confess my sin. I accept his gift. Three, I live by faith. That's what makes you a Christian. I confess my sin. I accept his gift of salvation. And I live by faith. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I was taught and I was coached when I was trying to learn how to be a pastor that I was, on Sunday morning, I was never supposed to pray, I pray, but instead we pray because I'm praying on behalf of everybody. But I just feel compelled this morning, Father, to just say, I want to thank you for what you've done in my life. I want to thank you for Jesus and I want to thank you that his resurrection is something that makes sense to me, that I understand, that I can engage in rationally and intellectually. And I want to thank you the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life. Father, I don't take that for granted. I realize that I don't deserve the gift of salvation. And when I go over this again, I'm motivated to live for you. Father, I pray that all of us would be motivated to live for you. 
as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're here today and you've become convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead and you want to accept him as your savior, I want to encourage you to pray this very simple prayer in your heart. Dear God, I repent and I confess my sin. I know I have issues and I know I have garbage and I know I have sin in my life. I admit that. Dear God, I accept the gift of your salvation. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and it's only me accepting that invitation and accepting that gift that gains me forgiveness for my sins. I believe that. And Father, from this day forward, I place my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. I choose to trust Him. I choose to believe in Him. And I'm choosing from this day forward to live for Him. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one else looking around. There was about 15, 20 people first service. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, just slip up your hand right now. For me and for you, I see that hand. Anyone else? Slip it up real quick so I could see it and I'll pray for you. Slip it up real quick. I see those hands. Anyone else? Slip it up real quick. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for those that accepted your gift of salvation this morning. Remind them and confirm to them that there are angels rejoicing in heaven this morning. Father, I just want to thank you for what you've taught us this morning. It's been kind of a different Easter Sunday where we've had to put our thinking caps on and really process information. Father, I pray for every one of us here this morning that what we've covered over the last 35 minutes will have helped us take our next step closer to you. We love you. We thank you for what we've learned this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.